morning, church. A couple of weeks ago, we were coming back from British Columbia, and as, as, I, as we were flying back, I said to Fran, I have this thought, I think that I'm supposed to um, speak on finishing well. And I thought it was going to be one message, and uh, with a number of components, you know, starting, continuing, ending. And, um, and then as I started to prepare the message, well, it went to, you know, I did one, and then I realized, oh, there's another one. And so, um, you know, the first one that I did was the middle one, and it was continuing well, get up. God is a God of a second chance, and I talked about five things that take people out of the race, disappointments with God, love of this world, refusal, uh, refusal to forgive and be healed internally, refusal to forgive themselves, and fifthly, those who quit in persecution. We talked about three of those uh, in particular, and... Uh, and God says to those who have quit in the race, he says, get up. Amen? What does he say to the, uh, those that quit in the race? Get up. He says, get up and let's get going again. So we went to the middle one, and, uh, and, and uh, today, or, it, or in weeks to come, and uh, this is a three-part series, and I don't know, it might take me a year to get to the third one, but... Um, and, and finish it, but I'm going to preach, the next time I get to preach, I'll speak on starting well, and I don't know the tagline there yet, so I didn't put it in there, but today I do know the tagline for today, and it's about, uh, uh, and it's part number three, it's retiring well, and I'm saying today, you've got to press on. Uh, we've got to press on, and that's what I want to talk about. So before we get going, let's just bow forward of prayer and intentionally ask Jesus by His Spirit to speak to our hearts and tell Him that we're going to engage and get, active, get our minds active in this thing. We're not just going to sit here and take it, but we're going to, um, we're going to engage with Him and respond to Him uh, in this message, all right? Lord, thank You so much for the many blessings You've poured out on our lives, salvation being one of them, but... Oh, God, you've done so much for us as individuals. You've set free so many people. When I think even of the encounter that I was mentioning, the fact that 4,000 have already gone through the encounter just here, and then all those encounters out west yet, and what you're doing there, it's just tremendous. Holy Spirit, only you could have done that. And we worship you, and we praise you, and thank you for that. God, we love you. Thank you that you're setting people free, that you're changing and transforming hearts and lives, that you're saving men and women and, and teens and boys and girls. And lives are being changed. And we thank you that in this particular series that you are challenging us not to quit in the race and to keep going. As we look at today, retiring well, press on, Holy Spirit, we choose to engage with you. We choose to respond. We choose to interact with our minds actively and with our hearts in our will. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed by saying? They call them the golden years. But if you talk to people between 50 and 80 years old, in the last service I was calling it, uh, you know, like oil, 50W80, um, but if you talk to people between 50 and 80 years old and some, somewhere in there, and maybe you're a few years more and a few years less, you fit in that category, especially if you look like us, many will tell you that they're not really that golden. That's what many will tell you. 
This last home stretch can be quite challenging. God wants to help you navigate this last stretch successfully. He wants you to finish strong. Paul said in Philippians 3, 14, he said, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know, Fran and I are celebrating 40 years of marriage this year, back in June 23rd, and I told her that this anniversary, we never do this with any others, but this anniversary we're celebrating all year long, and we have been. And uh, we said 40, uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's quite a marker. And, um, and so let's celebrate it all year round. But we spend many hours praying and discussing how to run this last leg well. We're not letting up. We're pressing toward the goal to win the prize. Now, there's three things to help you navigate this last stretch successfully that I want to talk to you about. And the first one is, don't be hypnotized by the culture. Press on. Don't be hypnotized. Don't go to sleep. Press on. You know, God gives us many things that he wants us to steward, our attributes, our abilities, uh, our money, our opportunities. Our, our position or power or influence or skills or health or time, just time. God, everything that we have, the family background we came from, the family line, our marriage partner that God gave us, everything, God says, I want you to steward it for me. And, uh, and it's very, very important. Esther was a Jewish girl born into captivity during Judah's exile in Babylon. And one of the things that God gave her was beauty. Yes, we're even to steward beauty. Did you know that? We're not to worship beauty, but we're to steward it and physique and all the rest of it like I have. <laughs> I do the best I can, okay? So don't mock me. Then i got to go to an encounter again. Beauty is also something that can be stewarded for God. The Babylonian Queen Vashti had fallen into disfavor with her husband, King Xerxes. And a search was made for beautiful virgins throughout the kingdom so that this pagan king could sample and finally select a new queen for himself. Ultimately, he chose Esther, a Jewish maiden who kept her nationality hidden. As the story goes, Haman, the highest-ranking noble in the kingdom, plotted a genocide uh, uh, against the Jews. Mordecai, an older cousin of Esther who had raised her as an orphan, warned her of the plot to kill all Jews, and then he urged her to use the position she had gained through her beauty to influence the king to stop this madness. She got in the position because God made her beautiful, and God made her beautiful so that she would end up in that position, but she had to be a Jew in order that she cared about Jews. Do you see how God sovereignly set it all up? It's amazing, isn't it? Say, that's amazing. God asked her to steward it. She feared for her life and hesitated, saying that if she approached his throne room uninvited, she could be executed according to the law. Then Mordecai responded with these words, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is how she responded to the opportunity, which we have to steward as well. We're given opportunities throughout our life. Isn't that true? And God says, I want you to steward it. This is how she responded to the opportunity given to her and the urgency which was placed on it. Esther said, 
Uh, she, uh, then Esther told them uh, to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She said, uh, you know what? I'm in this uh, uh, position of power and influence and privilege. And you know what? It's nothing wrong if God puts you in a, uh, a position of, of influence and power and privilege. It doesn't, he's not against you having stuff and that you can enjoy some of the stuff as you're in the middle of it, but what he cares about is what you're going to do with it. Are we going to use it to advance his kingdom? She didn't squander the gifts, including her opportunities given to her. And, uh, and, and she, did something, she did something with them. There was an urgency. The Jews were going to die. And she said, well, if I have to forfeit my comfort, my privilege, and, my, and all the things that, and, and privilege that I have, uh, and if it even costs me my life, then I'm willing to steward it properly because there was an urgency. In the Joseph story, Pharaoh had two dreams. Dream number one was seven, uh, there were seven fat cows that came out of the Nile and were grazing in the reeds. Then seven gaunt cows came up and, uh, out of the Nile and ate up the seven fat cows. Maybe Chris will we'll talk about it yet. Dream number two, uh, Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh was sleeping. He, he wakes up from this dream. He goes back to sleep and he has another dream. And it's very similar. Seven full heads, full and healthy heads of grain grew up on a single stalk. Then seven thin and scorched heads sprouted and swallowed up the healthy ones. So Joseph, who had gained quite a reputation in prison, was called up to interpret the dreams. And he said to Pharaoh, the two dreams you had were one and the same. Now I'm going to connect some dots here for you in just a minute, but just hang on. Just work with me, okay? And this is what it says. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. There was an urgency here. God was about to do something. There, there, there was a catastrophe coming and God was about to do something and they better, they better listen and they better get busy preparing for what was coming. Are you following me? Immediately, Joseph laid out a plan that Pharaoh should take in order to avert the disaster. He said, you know, this is what you're going to do. You're going to have to hire a guy, and you're going to have to take all this, uh, the, the abundance from the first seven years, store it up, and, and on and on, and be ready for the seven years, or you will not survive. Everyone will die. There was an urgency to it. Now, here is the amazing part about this story. You know what it is? What's really amazing to me is that Pharaoh actually believed the warning. That's incredible. Just stop for a minute. This is truly amazing that this Pharaoh who did not know the living God actually believed the interpretation given by God's man. 
or the man of God. It's really amazing. I'm parking there for a reason. Immediately, he saw the urgency of the matter, appointed Joseph to be second in rank in the land, only behind Pharaoh in order to carry out the plan, and that is remarkable. Think about this. The disciples had asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Listen to what Jesus says about his coming and the end of age and the end of the age, and tell me if this sounds like something you're reading in, in your newspapers or magazines. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Does that sound like something you read or watch on the television? The pagan pharaoh believed and heeded the urgent warning saving his nation. Esther responded to the urgency of the hour, putting her comforts and very life on the line. And here's the question that I have for the North American church, for the Canadian church, and for Southland church. Do you, do we believe Jesus' warning? I mean, I, this, is, this is really amazing. Pharaoh believed the warning and did something about it. And the question that I'm asking the Canadian church or the North American church and our church is, do we believe Jesus' warning? Sometimes I really wonder if we do. Many in the 50 to 80 year phase of life have been hypnotized by the culture. They're moving off into retirement. And, and listen to me, uh, before I go any further on this. Over the last couple of years that I've been praying, the Holy Spirit has spoken to me, and there is a number that I believe that he has given me of how many good years we've got left. Now he's saying, oh, I can hardly wait for this. I'm pulling out my pen for this one. I'm not going to tell you what that number is. Fran knows what that number is. Because I, I'm not, it's not going to be about prediction. But there aren't many good years left. All you have to do is look at the signs. Read the papers. T take a look what's going. If we take our heads out of the sand, we can see it. There aren't many good years left. And he said, you better be preparing for what's coming. You better be busy because of what's coming, and because Jesus is soon coming again. But many in the 50 to 80 year phase, and I'm 59 next month, have been hypnotized by the culture that are moving off into retirement. That's what the rich man did, who was given an abundant harvest. He asked himself, what am I going to do? Now, just before we get any further, he was given an abundant harvest. By who? Help me, church. Yeah, go ahead and say it with confidence. Yeah, by God. Was it a sin to have an abundant harvest? No. And the answer is no, absolutely not. He was given an abundant harvest. There was nothing wrong with being wealthy. The problem was that he wanted to retire on it. And God says, I want you to take it and I want you to invest it. In fact, 
if we, uh, if, if we continue, we, we'll discover it. He asked himself, what am I to do? I know, I'll tear down my barns, build even bigger barns to store my uh, surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. In other words, 55 plus, take your early retirement. That's what he's talking about. The problem isn't that he has stuff. The problem is that he's, well, in fact, we see uh, God's response to that kind of thinking. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be toward anyone who stores up things for himself but isn't rich toward God. Therein lay the problem. I'm not saying that at 70 you can do what you did at 30. No way. <laughs> There's just no way. I can't at 59 do what I did at 30. At 70, you may have to stop walking on roofs if you're in the roofing business like Jonathan Penner. Amen? I hope at 70 he's not walking around on the top of roofs. But what I am saying is that you cannot retire from serving God wholeheartedly to take it easy. My mom, she worked at the PCH, personal care home, for 25 years, lifting bodies, moving bodies, turning bodies. And at some point, you physically cannot do it anymore. And so on March the 10th, 1999, she retired and began volunteering. Six different things. That woman was so busy, she'd sometimes say, you know, it's really hard to get a hold of you. One time she actually complained that. And she'll probably take me to task for saying that uh, today. At noon she'll probably do that. And so can I come to your place for lunch? <laughs> anyway, uh, she, she actually took me to task for it. She said, you're very hard to get a hold of. And then my daughter Julie said to her, Grandma, you are impossible to get a hold of. The only way we can get a hold of you is if we leave a message. That's how busy in retirement. And she was busy volunteering in six different things. I met a marketplace leader when I was uh, 20 years old, many, many years ago. And he was nearly 40, and he told me that his goal was to make enough money to retire by 50, and he did it. He actually did it. Made his money and retired by the time he hit 50. And you know what he did for the next 30 years after he retired? He traveled, he enjoyed his cottage, he made wood carvings, and he sang in a group and spent a lot of time in the South during the winter. And I'm saying, this man had influence in the church and community. He had the ability to make a pile of money. He could have funded, led, pushed forward in doing so much good for the kingdom, and he didn't. He was hypnotized by the culture, saying it was time for him to take it easy and enjoy what God had given him. The 50W80 crowd can be some of your most, or time I should say, can be some of your most productive years. Did you know that? Those can be your most productive years for the kingdom. I kid you not. There's three things that you've been given in this stage, at least three, there may be other things, but that you have more of than at any other time in your life generally speaking. First of all, you have more knowledge and more wisdom, I hope, by the time you get in your 50s. Amen? Some of you might be wondering. <laughs> but generally speaking, is it not true? 
You've gone through a lot of life experiences. You've learned a lot of life lessons. You've learned a lot about your skills and your craft and your abilities and your business and your jobs and, and everything else. You know a lot. I planted a church when I was 29 years old, and I had no idea what I was supposed to do. I'll never forget moving in. I had, I had gone to Bible college, and uh, they never really told me what I was supposed to do. So I got in there. I looked at all the other churches, and they had a service at 11 o'clock on Sunday, so I had one too. They said you got to, uh, they, were, they were holding a service in the evening at 6, so I had, no, at 7, and I, I went way out on the limb, and I started at 6. Wow. <laughs> that was cutting edge stuff, amen? And then, uh, then on Wednesdays, you had Bible study, night, uh, Bible study and prayer, so then I had that too. Whatever they did, I did. And, uh, and, and there were so many things that I didn't understand. Uh, we, we started with eight, the six of us, and then two, alcoholic and a, and, 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 and a woman that he eventually married. And uh, we started with those, and we grew relatively quickly over the next while till we hit 100, and then I couldn't get it past 100. I mean, I'd get them in, I'd lead them to Christ and get them in, and they'd go out the back door. I couldn't understand it. Didn't make any sense. Nobody could help me. And I didn't know what to do. And then when I got, um, you know, we grew a little bit from that, but, but, but there was like, there was a barrier. Then I got over here to Southland, and when I started at Southland in 96 of January, then uh, very roughly the same size, maybe just a handful more, and we were in the same stage. And I realized we had a problem. And uh, then, uh, you know, I, re I started reading some books on it and stuff, and you know what I discovered? There's a thing called growth barriers. For churches, at 100, you've got to change how you were doing it from when you were 25, at 200, 400, 800, and then somewhere around 16 to 2,000, then you get in the 3,000s, and you've got to change the way congregational governance goes and your board polity and your staff governance. You have to change all of that, and you have to change it at every single level. I, I never knew that before. But once I figured that out, I said, oh, that's what we got to do. So we started making some shifts and changes, and guess what? We could, go, we, could get, we could break through the barriers. No problem. We just had to keep changing it all the time. And thankfully, you were gracious in doing that, <laughs> or we would have never been able to do it. Well, the one day, uh, uh, I'm talking to a young pastor some, some years ago, and just in the course of the conversation, he said to me, I don't know what's the matter with our church. We just cannot break 200. I couldn't believe it that he used the number 200. I went, ha, I know what the problem is. He said, what's the problem? I said, you are the problem. <laughs> he just looked at me and I said, oh, don't worry. I said, you're always the problem. <laughs> I said, uh, it's always a pastor who's the problem. Just ask the people in the church. They'll tell you that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I said, but truthfully, you are. You're the leader. And I said, the only reason is you don't know that you've hit a growth barrier and you don't know how to, what you need to change. I said, I, 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 I experienced the same thing. <laughs> I said, I went through the same thing. I get it. I was the problem. I didn't understand. But now I know. You know what's the problem? The guy never phoned me to ask me what, how to get through. And I desperately wanted to help him for free. Man, if I was in business, they, they, I wouldn't tell nobody. But in church, we tell everything. Amen? <laughs> wow. 
Those are some, and, and you know, I think about, I think about the uh, renewal principles. We are, you know, I was leading people to Christ, and then after a while, they'd lose the first blush of their salvation and stuff, and I thought, we need renewal. We need revival in this church. All these converts of mine there, <laughs> we're in bad shape. So I told some other Baptist pastors we brought in the Satara Twins, and after two weeks of speaking to them and challenging them, they, people repented and changed, and, and they were revived. I could not believe it, but three to six months later, they were in the same mess they were before. And I went to the Lord, and I said, I'm so disillusioned with the gospel. It doesn't seem to work for me. We're in the same mess. And the Lord began to speak to me and said, Ray, you don't understand the principles of renewal and revival. So I'm going to have to teach you. And over the next bunch of years, he started to doing it. And finally, we began to collect it, you know, in things like the encounter and the empower, but then also in our eight renewal principles and that kind of stuff. It took me years to figure that out and understand it. I've been a lead pastor now for 26 years, just, fin- uh, just uh, 17 and a half here at this church. Best church anywhere. Don't tell anybody else, but it's true. I just love this church. And, but it's taken me 26 years to figure this out. And I'm thinking, man of living, that took far too long to figure this out. We could have grown much faster. And we could have reached many more people if we knew it. So, I mean, what if some other guys could learn it in 10 years? Oh, or five years. There's an urgency. There's a storm cloud coming. We got to be busy. Amen. And these can be some of our most productive years. Uh, this is exactly, you say, well, this is just fine for you to say. You're a pastor, so you have somebody to tell. Uh, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. What do you mean by that? I'm just a stay-at-home mom. What a horrible thing to say. What a horrible thing to say. Just a stay-at-home mom? You mean you are a stay-at-home mom? God bless you. You're doing the most important work in the world. That is the greatest career choice you could make. Raising up the next generation. I can't, it's, it's a lot of hard work. Changing all those poopy diapers and trying to instill some character in these kids, right? Do you know that young families are absolutely floundering around you just like I'm finding a lot of pastors and churches are floundering? Perhaps you could start a cell for younger women or join Selah and offer your help there. Second Timothy 2, Paul said to Timothy, he said, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men and women who will also be able to teach others. Perhaps you could mentor moms. First, in 1 Timothy, Paul said, he said, These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. I have, for example, six key things. Like uh, I said to Fran recently, I've said this to her from time to time. If somebody comes up to me and says, what do you think the six key things are for raising kids? I could, I could just list it off. Six. Boom. Six. Maybe there's seven. I don't know. But six for sure I could tell you. And maybe somebody wants to grab that and turn it into something. And uh, use it. Uh, use it to, to, uh, to train moms. If you're in, a, and, and let me make this note, if you're in a stage before 50 to 80, you're crazy if you don't want to learn from this group. Listen, part of the reason the 50 to 80 group cannot contribute the way they like is because our culture worships youth. They're fools. It's foolishness. 
they got something to offer. You know, when I started at Southland, uh, in 1996, within two months, I phoned, I, I looked around and I said, who's got the biggest church in this, t uh, in this area? I got some learning to do. And it was Jim Scobie. Uh, he, was, he had pastored <laughs> 17 years at that time. I, I kid you not, at that time, 17 years. Now it's me, 17. And uh, so I phoned him up and I said, uh, Pastor Jim, is there any chance I could take you for coffee and a tart at MJ's, you know? And I was going to sweeten the deal. And anyway, we went over there, and I fed him tarts. And then I said, Pastor Jim, we have had two church splits at our church uh, before I started here. And so now I have a question for you. Either, either you have all the good people and we've got all the bad people, <laughs> or you have figured something out. <laughs> and he's a little Scottish man. He's just laughing there, you know, munching on tart all over him. And... <laughs> He's a wonderful man, godly man. And uh, he was just laughing at my sick humor. And, uh, and, and then he began to share some things. I said, how have you maintained unity and harmony and peace this many years? And so he began to outline some things. Oh, a few months later, I phoned him again. Can I take you out for tart and coffee? Yeah, tarts, yeah, absolutely. So we did it again. And, and we did it several times like that. And then finally one day I said, I said to Fran, I, I said, I got some questions that I, 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 don't think, I don't think he can help me with. And I, be, I went to prayer, and I started to pray. Oh, Jesus, please show me somebody that has, knows, knows how to handle this problem and knows this, uh, this challenge and where I can read up on this or how I should do this. And all of a sudden, I got a name. It was Pastor Paul Wortman. He was a pastor at, at the meeting place in Winnipeg. And their church was a little over 2,000 at the time. Ours was around the five, 600 mark. And so I phoned him up and I said, I said, Pastor Paul, this is uh, Ray Dirksen from Steinbeck. You don't know me, but I know you. Any chance I could see you for 60 minutes and ask you a question? He said, yes, come on over. So I drove over there and I watched my watch very carefully. And on the 60-minute mark, I just stood up. <laughs> I mean, right in mid-sentence. Stood up and I said, thank you so much for your time. Any possibility that sometime in the future I could see you for another 60 minutes? And he said, absolutely. He grinned and I walked out. I did that a bunch of times. And then finally he left. And uh, we need to be learners. We need to learn from the next, from the 50 to 80 group. Would you agree? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, we need to do that. What I've discovered is that many uh, in the group below don't think they have anything to teach. And many times I've said to pastors, I, honestly, across the country, I've said, guys, I've got something to show you. I can help you. And many times guys don't want it. But not all of them. You know, last year in, uh, in November, there was three of them that were online mentoring, you know, in the Church Renewal online mentoring. And you know how many are starting on September 4th? Thirteen. Six of them are churches of a thousand, and five of them are from Manitoba. Can you believe that? <laughs> Manitoba! I didn't think there'd ever be any from Manitoba, but there are. If you've been walking by faith for many years, you may be able to inspire the next generation to step out and take more land. Caleb. Do you remember Caleb <laughs> in the Old Testament? He's 45 years old when him and Joshua... One, uh, two of the ten spot, uh, 12 spots, right? Ten said, oh, we can't go in there. Giants are too big. These two said, with God's help, we can take them giants. Remember that? 
Joshua becomes the, uh, succeeds Moses, and Caleb goes into the land. And they're the only two from that generation that, that got to see the land. They go into the land, and Caleb is now 85 years old. 85. And uh, he goes up to his buddy Joshua one day, and he says, Joshua, I remember those good old days. By the way, he said, Moses promised that when we were in the land, you could have this land, and I could have this land, and I want you to give it to me. And Joshua says, okay, I'll give it to you. You, you can have the land. You know what's so funny about that statement? It, that's exactly the way it says it in Scripture. You know what's so funny about it? Because he wasn't given anything. He had to go fight for it. There were giants in there. At 85, he determines he's going to go and take it. Oh, but it get, the story gets a little more humorous. Because uh, then uh, he says, okay, I'm going to go take it. And, and he, remember what he says to Joshua? I'm as strong as I was at 45. I can see just as good. I'm, I'm, I can do this. I'm 85. I'm just as good as I was at 45. Baloney. <laughs> That's absolute baloney, and I can prove it to you. You know what happened? He, um, <laughs> he goes back home. Joshua says, God bless you. You know, Caleb goes back. I'm just as strong as I ever was. He goes back to his tribe, and you know what's the first thing he says? Now, which of you young bucks is going to take it? Whoever, whichever one of you young bucks goes and fights for it, I'll give you my daughter, my beautiful daughter. <laughs> Othniel says, a daughter? I'll take it. I'll take the land. How many great things have been done for a woman, amen? <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Oh, my goodness. Second, you don't just have more wisdom and insight and faith that you can pass on to the others. But in, many, in some cases, <laughs> you have more assets than any time in your past. Business people, let me talk to you for a minute. Don't be so quick to sell your business to just anyone. We're talking about urgency here. We're talking about a lot of stuff that's got to happen. Don't just go looking for the highest bidder. Perhaps you can raise up and train someone who will continue the giving you did so that the kingdom can benefit. Can you imagine? You, uh, here you've done all this kingdom work with the assets you have. And by the way, you know where you got them from? Help me. Oh, God. You did not earn that. You were given that. Everything we have, we get from God. Everything. Don't just take it for granted. Now, if God wants you to do it, you go to prayer and God says, this is what I want you to do, and then I'm going to take those assets and you're, I'm gonna, I want you to do this with it and that with it and, and so on and so forth. God bless you, do it. I'm not going to be standing there asking those questions. I'm just saying. This isn't for you to consume. Does that make sense, church? quiet. Maybe you've been very successful in business. It was so hard to get going. You put everything on the line, and I know marketplace leaders like that, to get a business going, and you work 15 hours a day for years to slowly get equity and cash flow, and now you finally have capital, equity, and cash flow to roll it over and make more money quickly and multiply what you've done. Make, and this is what I want to say to you, make as much as you can. If you can triple it, triple it. 
If you can quadruple it, quadruple it. If you can go 10 times, now you have the ability. You're on a roll now. Do it for the kingdom. Do it for the kingdom. And think about mentoring some young adults who have the capacity for business. I know of marketplace leaders in the generation that preceded me who gave other budding marketplace leaders a chance to get going and who are now successful. I've read about and a few marketplace leaders have even told me that this was their experience. Perhaps you're successful enough where you could give another one uh, who loves Jesus to get going and show them how to use the money for the kingdom. We have marketplace leaders in Southland who have done some of these things. I can't name them, but I know some of them. It's true. We're talking about finishing well. We're talking about urgency. You say, well, what would I use all that money for? Come and see me. You know, we got a camp. We sent 500 kids there. What you don't know is what I do in my office. You don't know that day after day, Fran knows, Grace knows, I have, uh, and Chris knows, I have, I have just pleaded and begged God, just please give us that camp. Please can we have a camp. Why? Because we, we can't pour assets into somebody else's place, and yet we've got over 500 kids going, I, and I said to God, you know what, I, what number I pray? Give me 2,000 kids before this whole disaster hits that our society is on track for. Give me 2,000 kids that we can save. And parents and young people and youth and adults who we can help form character in. But it's going to take money, and it takes time. And one day, uh, Holy Spirit's been speaking to me about this for months already. Months. One day I know that we're going we're gonna to set up a multi-site we're going to, at this church, we're going to, you know, we'll, we'll broadcast or podcast and we'll go into another city or area or whatever and do this again. Why not? Synergy. But it takes money and it takes people and it takes resources. And you know what? Then there's this Liberian pastor. His name is Richard Tia. Richard Tia writes me. He, he started writing uh, Chris and then Chris forwarded to me. You know what he does? He begs us to come to Liberia and help him. He said, please, please, can we become part of Southland? He said, you have all these resources, all these things you could teach us and help our, and mentor our pastor and stuff. And, the, and, and then, you know what, he, he sends me another email. And he said, brother, you haven't responded. Oh, no, because I feel so guilty and I don't know what to say because I've said no ten times already. And then he, and then he says, brother... We have been fasting and praying for X number of weeks. Oh! <laughs> Chris sees that and he goes, oh! There is no end to what we could do through Southland. We've got five big missions already, and we need to expand on that. We're talking about finishing well and urgency. Third, you have more time than you ever have in your past. You say, well, I'm not a teacher or leader, so I can't multiply myself into the other budding teachers or leaders to carry on. I don't have that kind of wisdom and knowledge. I, I don't have the assets of marketplace leaders, so I can't roll over more money and invest big time. I'm, 
I'm, I'm a laborer. I've been a laborer all my life. That's, you know, that's what my dad was all my life. That's what my father-in-law were all their lives. Or you were a mom raising many kids much of your adult life. You know what you have now? Time. You know what you have? Time. When you're raising all, all kinds of kids and stuff, it's just crazy, isn't it? Yeah, you have from run from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Always, oh my goodness, you're done. <gasps> at the end of the day. And then suddenly they leave, and it's quiet in the home. You know what you have? You have time. And you can invest time in the kingdom. There's an urgency. You could get involved in helping younger dads or young boys who have no dads. With all the ministries we have here, you could do so much. You know what? We have a woman here who's a pillar in the church, and 99.99% of you wouldn't even know her if you saw her. If I put a picture on there, you, on, on a screen, you wouldn't know her. And she is one of the key, key, key people here at Southland. I'd put her in the top handful. I kid you not. Um... She's a mom in Winnipeg, working in Winnipeg. She retired from her job. I think she's in her 50s. I think so. <laughs> and, um, and then she, God told her to move here so that she could pray for me and for this church. And her name is Carla Fontaine. She's short. She has the biggest smile. She lives in a humble home. She lives very close to where I do. And she moved here specifically to pray. Specifically. And she's never noticed. She is an absolute giant here. Much of the credit in heaven is going to go to people like her. No question about it. For what happened here at Southland. <clears throat> don't be, number two, don't be foiled by limitations. Press on. There's a second pitfall I see in the 50-80 stage of life. Our bodies don't work the same way they once did. Hair falls out. Skin loses its luster. Teeth need, you know, start grinding. And they need replacing. We don't have the strength we once did. We become more forgetful. Fran understands some of this. I teased her in the other service, and she just yelled and waved from back there. No, she's gorgeous. I don't know how she does it. but And sometimes in this stage, some of us begin to whine and pine for the old days. Some become bitter with God because they can't do what they did before. Sometimes they'll even wish or say, there's no point to living. I may as well be dead. I, I, you know what? Now, now help, help me understand this. I understand that if a non-believer says, there's no point in me living, I may as well be dead. Because they don't have purpose and meaning in life. They're just living for themselves. And so once, once the whole thing breaks down, there's no reason to exist. But for the believer, those words should never come off our lips. Shouldn't be coming out of our heart. Paul was in prison again, the second time now. <laughs> He couldn't go out and preach the gospel anymore, and he also knew that he was about to be executed, but one thing he had was time. <laughs> he was getting older, too. Paul, Paul aged. And not even prison could keep him from using time. 
In 2 Timothy 4, we see he says, he writes to Timothy, he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Also the books and above all the parchments. Why does he want Mark? Because Mark is useful to him for the ministry. If I can't do ministry, I'll do it through somebody else. I'll send him. And he says, I'm not going to quit studying. He already knew that he was going to be executed. He didn't know the date, but he knew he was going to be executed. And he says that in the previous chapter. And, but Paul is pressing on right to the end. He's got time. And he's going to steward the time that he has for the kingdom. No watching TV for him. And he wants to continue reading and studying and writing. He couldn't go out and preach. So that's what he, he, this is what he's going to do. You know what else he could do a lot of in prison? We find it. There's a hint of it. In, second, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, I remember you constantly in my what? Prayers. You know why he was constantly remembering? I was, I, was, I was meditating on that. You know why he was constantly remembering Timothy in his prayers? Because he had a lot of time to do it. When you're really, really busy all the time, doing, 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 you don't have time to do that. And besides all that, we know that he had a thorn in the flesh, some kind of serious physical limitation, yet Paul leveraged his limitations to continue serving God to the end. Nothing could keep him from finishing strong. I've often said to friend, you know what I love about being a believer? As I get older, I, I, I'll never run out of a job. Oh, you might kick me out of my office. You might quit paying my salary. That's fine. But I will never be out of a job. I'll always have meaning and purpose. You can never sideline me. Never. I will always have significance. I will always have purpose till Jesus says, Okay, son, it's time to come home. If God takes my mobility away one day so that I literally cannot do anything, I won't be praying for him to take me home. I'll take on the ministry of prayer. I'll bring God's kingdom to bear on earth as his will is in heaven, and in doing that, I will live in his glory and presence in my chair or my bed. I can just see it. Fran and me sitting in our respective wheelchairs. Hello? Grace fast? Would you get somebody to wheel you over here and bring the prayer sheets with you? Yes! And we'll pray up a storm. And if any of the others are alive, <laughs> like Paul and Sue and some of those, Doris Friesen and Carla, if any of them are alive, they can join too. And we'll pray up a storm. We'll lift the roof off of that place. Amen? Oh, yeah. We don't stop. Press on. We press on. Can you say that, church? We leverage what we have. And number three, quickly, don't get stalled by life changes. Press on. I don't live for change, as some of you might think. I've just learned to adjust and live with it. You know, when we moved from, uh, when, when God told us to stop at Woodstock after eight years, and then we're going to be moving, Fran and I took a trip by ourselves, and we went to the East Coast, drove a driving trip. You have no idea how many times I cried on that trip. <laughs> I, I, I just... I, I just found the change, the, the f moving into the next phase, and I didn't know exactly what, what God had in mind, and all that. I found it so hard. And uh, Fran was amazing. 
And uh, then I remember we had the encounters here, and I did the first, uh, I think I led the first 20 of them, and we've done like 55 of them now here, over 4,000. But anyway, I, I led the first 20 or so, and one day in my prayer, the Holy Spirit said, Ray, I want you to give up the encounters, and I want you to give it to somebody else to do, because I got other stuff for you. And, and, and I said, no, God, we're seeing so much life change, transformation. This, these are the most fun trips. I loved, uh, you know, when Fran and I would drive home from Pinawa exhausted and we would just rehearse the stories of, of people's lives that were changed right in front of our eyes. And I said, I can't believe it. And when I conducted my last encounter up in Pinawa, we got in the van. I was quiet all the way home because I was, I was weeping all the way home. I couldn't believe it. I said, God, that was such a fun faith. God said, I've got something else for you. And then it was the empower. <clears throat> and this last year, the Holy Spirit began to say to me, if you're going to do church renewal and if you're going to reach out <clears throat> to Canadian pastors and with, uh, with the church renewal ministry, you're going to now have to cut, you're going to have to cut way back on your preaching and teaching. Oh, that. I'm, I'm, folks, I'm, I'm just telling you, I'm putting my heart out there for, for just a second right now, that was hard for me. I'm telling you, changing phases in life isn't easy. Those of you that are in the 50 to 80 year, uh, year category, and you know, uh, those of you that are 30, you don't, you actually don't get that. You, you cannot get that until you're there. You know, your life changes are, I'm single, I'm getting married. Hee! And then comes that first kid, you know? He. <laughs> and it is exciting. And then you're growing up, and especially, the, you know, they get in that 8 to 12 range and stuff, and they love you, and, and, and you're doing so much stuff, and then one day they're all gone. And it's quiet at home. That's not an easy, that's not an easy phase, is it? Some of you, you've gone through it. And you're stalled in it. You're stalled in there. You're, want, you're mourning and grieving for the past. Some parents, they never let go of their kids. The kids are grown up and they've got their, their own kids. They're still trying to control them. Because they're trying to live in the past and recapture what they had in the past. And God says, I want you to let go. It's time to move on. That doesn't mean you don't care, you don't pray with him, you never see him. I don't mean that. But it's time for the next phase. And it's hard. You had to retire, uh, you had to retire from your job. Your spouse passed away. Now what? Obviously. There's a time for grief and transition, but then God urges us to move on. Anna was married seven years. And, and, we, we see it recorded in the New Testament, and then she lost her husband. After only seven years, oh, ouch. That's a painful. And uh, God says, I got something else for you. I want you to move on, Anna. And we see recorded in the, in the Gospels that she was 80, at 84 from, from the time that he passed away, when, her husband, when she lost her husband, till 84 she was in the temple night and day, it says, worshiping with fasting and praying. And God used her 
to bring in Messiah. Do you think that the enemy didn't want Messiah to come? That he was doing everything to stop it and kill him and destroy him? And You bet. We read about it. And God used an Anna in prayer to bring it about. It's a remarkable, remarkable story. Paul said, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forget what's behind. That doesn't mean you can't remember it in your mind anymore. He's saying, don't live there anymore. You're finished that part of your, that phase. It's time to move to the next phase and give it all you have. Press on. Amen? Amen, church? Yeah, that's what he's saying. I'm going to finish with this story, and you'll be done. June 1997, a man by the name of Reg Fast um, did something very unusual. Uh, we were in the old building, and, and so I hadn't, I'd only pastored for a little over a year there. And uh, I'd been preaching that Sunday, I remember it, on, on serving God. You've got to serve God, something on that. And so at, I shook hands with everybody, and finally everybody shook out, and they were gone. And, uh, I, you know, I took a key, and I was the last one out, and I locked the door. That's how it was in those days. As I walked out, and there was nobody left, here was the Chrysler, the maroon Chrysler, pulled up right to the steps. And Reg was sitting there. I still remember seeing Grace there and the three children in the back seat. And he just put out his head like this, and he went like this. And he had this uh, kind of grin on his face. And so I finished locking, went to the, uh, went to the car window. It was a, a June, I believe. Beautiful, beautiful sunny day. And uh, I was standing there, and he said, I know what God want, how God wants me to serve in this church. This was in response to the message. And I said, ah, great. How does he want you to serve? You've got to understand, nobody left in the parking lot. Not a single solitary soul. They were just waiting for us in the heat, waiting for me in the heat. And he said to me, um, he looks at me, and he said, uh, God has called me to be your friend. And I went, ha, ha. Like, like, what do you do with that? <laughs> uh, we didn't have a position like that in the church. <laughs> but then I realized he wasn't, he wasn't laughing. He just looked at me, and I said, oh, well, thank you very much. And I shook his hand, and he rolled up the window, backed away, and they drove away. And I just stood there, and I thought, what was that? I've never had anybody do that before. Well, within a week, he called me and he said, you know, uh, Ray, I, um, how, how would you like to go flying? And uh, he had a little Piper Cub. And he was a helicopter pilot, commercial pilot. And uh, I said, oh, I'd love to. And uh, so we, and then he taught me how to fly his little plane. And then after that, I flew his, his plane and stuff. We had a wonderful summer together. Then in, in the winter of 1998, you know, roughly six, seven, eight months later, he was diagnosed with cancer, and during that time, Grace interceded much for her husband until one day the Lord told her that he was taking Reg home. She would walk up and down their runway where they lived. They, they had a hangar and a runway there, and she would just pray and pray. She had really got into prayer, and she was praying for her husband, and God said to her, Grace, it's time to stop praying. I'm taking Reg home. And... Uh, it was very difficult for her and her children who were all at home. Very, very difficult time. And, uh, and then one day in March of... Uh, let me just see if I got that here. Yeah, anyway, she's praying. And the one day, 
she's praying and said, God, I really learned how to pray and really learned how to enjoy praying. And it was for Reg, and now, now I don't know what to do. Like, now what's my life about? Talk about a new phase, amen? Now what do I do? And uh, you know what the Holy Spirit said to her? I want you to continue what Reg promised to Ray. I want you to be his friend. She said, well, Lord, that's kind of inappropriate. He's a married man. And the Holy Spirit said, there's different ways you can be his friend. I want you to phone him, and he will tell you what to do. I didn't know any of this background stuff. I just knew that first part about meeting Reg. She told me that years later. And so she phoned me and said, uh, Pastor Ray, what, uh, what uh, would you like, how, how could I be used here in the church? And I said, oh, I can tell you something that I need desperately right now. She said, well, what is it? She sa I said, you know, I've got this pastor's prayer group, and I'd really like you to get involved in the pastor's prayer partner uh, stuff. She said, all right. I had no idea what God had done in her heart about prayer. And so she got involved, and by the next year, in 2000, she became the head of my uh, prayer partners, and then eventually in 2004, she was leading so much prayer and expanding the ministry of prayer, etc., that we hired her here. I hired her. It's amazing. You may be, st you may be stalled in a, a life phase change. God is saying, I'm not done with you. Don't look back. That is past now. I've got the next step for you, and I want you to focus on it. There's an urgency in our time. The time is short. We must be very, very busy, church. Amen? And I say to you in the 50 to 80 crowd, don't fall for the cultural lie that we're just to move on into this thing called retirement. You may retire from some of the things you were doing, but God's calling you. And you may have your most productive ministry lives just ahead of you for the kingdom. What you thought you accomplished may be nothing compared to what he has for you in the years or the time that you've left. Don't squander the time. So don't be hypnotized by the culture. Don't be foiled by limitations, and don't be stalled by life. You're going to say to me, Ray, I don't know where to start. I know where to start. Take those three things with you into your prayer time this week and begin to pray. That's what, that's what Grace did. Go to prayer. Take it to prayer. Say, God, now what do I do? And he will begin to show you, or maybe he'll say, call Ray, <laughs> or call Tim, or call Chris, or call somebody call. They'll tell you what to do. And watch God do with you exceedingly abundantly more than you can ask or think or even imagine. Amen? For his honor and for his glory. Maybe you're here today and uh, you don't know Jesus. <laughs> you know, you don't have purpose and meaning in, in your life. Then I want you to pray this prayer that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray in your heart. And you can receive Jesus and have this meaning and purpose that I have and that so many here have. Dear Jesus, thank you for bringing me here today. 
Thank you that there can be meaning and purpose in life. I want it, and I know that it's found in you. All good things are found in you. Thank you that you died on the cross for my sins to save me from myself and my mess. I give you my heart my life to use for the remainder of my days for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.